Hello, race fans, and welcome to another edition of the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. I am your host, Scott Stiller. Thanks for finding us. We hope everybody is safe and healthy. Coming up on this week's podcast, we're talking with Doug Bowles, the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Instead of preparing for the month of May, the Brickyard has reshuffled their event lineup for 2020, and Doug is joining us to talk about that, as well as how he got into racing. You may be surprised to find out how he likes to spend his weekend nights. We're also talking with Marcus Erickson, the newest member of Chip Ganassi Racing. Marcus drives the number eight Husky Chocolate Honda in the NTT IndyCar Series. And also on this week's show, Travis Geisler, Team Penske's competition director, who is a Western Pennsylvania native. If the name sounds familiar, it should. First up, one of the best promoters in racing today, Indianapolis Motor Speedway President Doug Bowles. One of the coolest things that Doug does every day is he calls 10 ticket holders to thank them for their support of the Speedway and to get their feedback about their experience at the Brickyard. How many promoters and track presidents do that? Joining us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast, the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Doug Bowles. Doug, thanks for taking time out of your schedule. We appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Doug, let's introduce the race fans. Before we talk about the Speedway, let's talk a little bit about how you got into racing as a fan. What age was it, and what was it about the sport that captured your attention? Yeah, you know, as far back as I can remember, uh, the Indianapolis 500 was the centerpiece of conversation at my house growing up my dad's one of my dad's first jobs right out of college was working for the united states auto club as their yearbook editor and pr guy back in the early 60s and usac was the organization that sanctioned the indianapolis 500 so even after i was born and he was no longer working there uh, much of our conversation was about the speedway so i've just grown up in a family that that, that this, you know the indianapolis 500 was the highlight of the year and uh, so I can't think of a time that, that I didn't love, you know, love motorsport. And even when I went to college, I was going to college and became a journalist, a journalism major, thinking that um, it would allow me to go find a job and at least write about the sport and figure out a way to make a living in and around it. Uh, so, you know, even as I was picking my, my degree uh, in college, it was focused on how can I set myself up to uh, have an opportunity to work in motorsport. So it's, it's been uh, it's really been what I've always wanted to do. Never could have dreamed of this job for sure, um, but uh, it, it is uh, it's an amazing place to work. And uh, I, I wish I could go back and uh, say to the ten year old kid who went to the five hundred for the first time when he was ten, that was the rule in my house. You had to be ten to go. Um, if I could have whispered in his ear and say, someday, someday you'll work here and have an opportunity to uh, uh, to be involved with the greatest spectacle in racing, it would have been fun for uh, fun for that ten year old kid to know that. You know, it's it's crazy how the Speedway has that aura about it that, that once you're there, you just, you know, it, it, it it's almost like a vacuum where it just pulls you in every year. And I remember the first time I went out there was actually for the inaugural Brickyard 400 and, uh, you know, getting a chance to walk through the, uh, you know, walk the hallowed grounds to start with, but then to go through the Speedway Museum and to see some of the cars that the guys raced you know all the way back to the marmon wasp that actually drew me to going to the 500 so uh so i tell everybody it, it's one of those events especially the 500 it's one of those events that if you're a sports fan 
regardless of whether you're a race fan, it's a bucket list event that you have to check out at least once in your lifetime. You know, it's, it, it really is, um, you know, the history and tradition that you speak of that, that's still sort of alive inside the museum with the, you know, the first car that won the Indianapolis 500, uh, that history and tradition is really what makes the place so special. And, you know, 70% or so of our fan that attends the Indy 500, that's the only race they really even watch all year. Right. So it's more than a, it's more than a race. It's the celebration of, uh, of technology, it's celebration of the human spirit. It's celebration of being a Hoosier for a lot of people. A lot of people that come, and that's it, so it makes it more than an auto race. It's just this massive event that you really can't describe to people uh, in a way that 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 does it justice. You really just have to you have to live through it. You know, um, I, I use Kurt Busch as an example. You know, Kurt um, when he came and ran the Indianapolis 500, obviously run the Brickyard, he, he knew what the Speedway meant. He knew our history. And I kept telling him, I said, yeah, you just wait till race day. It's, it's this unbelievably different experience. It'll blow you away. So race day happens and then he leaves and goes and races at Charlotte and he comes back on Monday for the victory celebration we had the night before. And he sought me out at the victory celebration and said, Hey, I just wanted to tell you, you were absolutely right. I could never have thought that that, pre-race and the lead up to the MV 500 um, was as crazy as you've described. He said, all of the cool things I've been involved in in my life, there's nothing like, especially the beginning of the Indianapolis 500 as you lead up to it. And it just, you just can't describe it. And it is one of those things that even for a non-race fan, if you love events and you love events with history, it, the Indy 500 is one you have to try once. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think we had the the event had that effect on Dale Jr. too when he got the opportunity last year to take it all in, and he was blown away as well. Yeah, you know, it was it was fun to get him to come. Um, you know, and he, you know he got to he got to view uh, you know view the race from the pace car as he drove the pace car, and then uh, you know he and Mike Tirico and Danica did their thing on the in the NBC stand, um, just watching the race, but he, he embraced the whole thing, which was pretty fun to watch, uh, the way he did that. And I think, I think he too was, he too was blown away with just, just the craziness of, uh, uh the energy level that's in the facility and the number of people and that, and the facility's old. And because of the grandstands are built basically right on top of the racetrack, not like in some of our bigger racetrack, newer stadiums, right where the where the where the grandstands are kind of set back and, and taper away from the racetrack. These are especially the front stretch on Turn One. You're right on it, so it makes three hundred thousand people feel really, really intimate. Uh, and it is it is it's just a magical moment. It's interesting how you got to that because I know you have a background. Actually, you worked for Panther Racing, correct? Yeah, I was one of the founders and a co-owner of Panther Racing for. Uh, eight or nine years. So you have an interesting perspective. You've been on both sides of it. You've, you know, you went to school for journalism and you're talking about what your father used to do. So, you know, the aspect of trying to cover an event like that. Now, you know, the aspect of being a part of it. And now you've got a different perspective as the guy in charge of the, of the whole speedway. So, uh, it's gotta be, you know, when you look back on it, it, it it's got to be something that is very, uh, first off, you know, congratulations for what an incredible career you've had. But on top of that, the perspective that you bring, I think, is very unique. Well, I, I do think at some level it's helpful to to have been on the competitor side of it so that you know um, what what they expect. And as you make changes, how is that going to impact 
how's that going to impact um, the race teams and the drivers? And that's one of the things that even, you know, Tony George, uh, before he sold the Speedway to Roger, uh, was also a team owner at Grown Up Around it. So he, he had that perspective as well. And obviously Roger does. So, uh, it, you know, in order for it to work, it has to work for the fans, but it also has to work for the competitors. And, and so having that Having that view to the race team side is definitely helpful. Even Jay Fry, who's running the IndyCar series, is a former team owner on the NASCAR side. So there is there is some definitely some value to having been on that side of it, having had to make a payroll, having understood what rural changes do to a budget. You know, all the uh, for a team, all those things are, are are really really important. The one thing I think I've really learned in my time at the Speedway and you, and you, you uh, couched me there as in charge of all of it. I, I really think what's amazing about the Speedway, it's just, is just how the team works and it. And it really is a combination of people together uh, that, that make the Speedway work. And, and I just, I just happen to be the guy that gets to, uh, gets to really focus on promoting and, and keeping the Speedway moving forward. But it's a full team of folks who, who make it work. And, you know, um, half the time I'm, I'm working for somebody else who, if you looked on an org chart, theoretically should, you know, should be reporting to me at the end of the day, I'm doing what they want. And and that's, what's made it so magical is it's just a group of people who don't care about their titles. Uh, they just really care about, um, protecting this institution and, and continuing to, to uh, grow the speedway and set it up so that it can be here for, you know, 100 and 110 years this year. Hopefully, you know, it's here for another, another 110. Well, you talked about the transition from the Holman George family, Roger Penske buying the Speedway off them at the end of last year and it taking closing the beginning of this year. And I know Roger announced a ton of initiatives that he wanted to have in place by May. And now the whole coronavirus pandemic has thrown the brakes on it. Uh, talk a little bit about Roger getting control and how that pumped everybody up. And have you been able to get much of what he wanted to get done started accomplished where are you at in that process so um just like most of the world um the announcement in november uh, was a surprise really for a lot of folks um it uh when uh, when tony george and roger first had a conversation about this it was late september and and roger kept uh kept the conversation to a really small group of folks on his side and, and Mark Miles and Cindy Lucchese, uh on the Hallman motorsports side really managed through um, that side of it. And really in a lot of ways, um, you know, 99% of the Hallman motorsport company, uh, IndyCar and IMS included in that, we um, didn't know until almost about the same time the rest of the world knew, which I think is pretty amazing um, that, that, that such a big, uh, transition, um, transaction, uh, was, uh, uh, you know, was really kept quiet, which made the announcement, uh, in November that much more powerful, right. When, when, uh, when it, when it came out and, and I was actually in Texas and, uh, for the, the last, uh, Texas NASCAR race, and then was going to head to the SEMA show in Vegas and got a call from, uh, from back here at home and said, Hey, we need you to come back home. And, and we, and you got to be in the office by 7am on Monday. And you started wondering when that happened, okay, is this the time that something, you know, that this big transition transaction is going to take place, but not really knowing what it was. And when I walked in the office a little after six, uh, the first person I saw that morning was Roger and immediately you knew what, what was going down. And, and, uh, it, it's been, uh, it's been a really crazy six months. Um, Roger has been, uh, really, really involved. He's been at the track and um, almost 
uh, the last couple of weeks he hasn't because of all the other things going on with, with COVID, but he's been in at least a couple of days every week. We've got a ton of projects going, moving forward uh, related to the facility that are customer experience projects. They have really have nothing to do with generating revenue. He just wanted to make an investment in our customers. And we were on track to be done with most of those by uh, between April 15th and May 1st. We put them on hold for a couple weeks, um, but with the new August uh, 23rd date, we're going to be fine getting getting ready for both the NASCAR weekend in July and the IndyCar weekend in, in August. So let's talk about the events and how you've had to juggle the schedule a little bit. And the first event coming out of the gate would have been the GMR Grand Prix. You guys have moved that to the NASCAR Brickyard 400 weekend along with the Xfinity Series for the first IndyCar NASCAR doubleheader, which uh, to me is just a phenomenal idea and a great way to get, you know, the race fans from, uh, you know, most race fans like here in Western Pennsylvania, they like dirt tracks. They like asphalt tracks. It doesn't matter what you're running. As long as it's got uh, fuel in it and it goes fast, they're into it. So uh, I think that was a great idea, whoever came up with that. So talk about how that, how that all came together. And obviously, Tickets are available, and hopefully this nightmare will be over, and we'll all be able to to sit at the brickyard and enjoy uh, both series. Well, you know, it really started um, back in the fall last year after after the announcement uh, with Roger, and one of Roger's biggest uh, focuses was how do we how do we build the brickyard four hundred back? It's an important weekend. What do we do? How do we talk to you know, our partners. So the big machine vodka investment in the speedway, how do we talk to uh, the teams? How do we, what can we do to make it something that the fans want to attend again? And we, and this year being on July 4th weekend, we had a lot of thoughts around how to celebrate our uh, country's independence. And, and then we, we were just throwing out some of the things we talked about in the past. And when we mentioned, well, we've, we've explored the road course and, you know, Roger's eyes lit up and he said well so why don't we why don't we do that why don't we see if we can get xfinity on the road course i'll get one of our one of our drivers who won't be allowed to race in that race and we'll and i'll put the cars up we can test and so we actually ended up testing in january um roger had some calls with nascar uh bud danker from roger's organization and and i met with uh, the nascar folks at the nascar banquet in nashville and sort of came to a handshake agreement and we did that test. And so getting the Xfinity cars on the road course really gave us an opportunity then when we had to move the GMR Grand Prix to say, well, there's no better place to put it than right there and do that doubleheader that everybody's talked about, the IndyCar NASCAR doubleheader weekend. Um, so, and it did it in a way that IndyCar could be on one day and, and Cup could be on another. So having the GMR Grand Prix and the Pinzoil 150 on Saturday leading into the Big Machine Vodka 400 on Sunday um, made for a pretty cool weekend. And, and so it really goes back to Roger saying, let's figure out a way to get Xfinity on the road course. Had we not done that, um, the doubleheader would not have worked. So that, that really, I give him a lot of credit for stepping out and helping us, helping us, uh, take some risk with, uh, with a road course slash oval on the same weekend. And now having the two road course races, I think I, I, I actually, that's, I love the Indy 500 more than just about anything, but right now I'm so excited about seeing uh, those two series together, and then and then the Cup race on the on the following Sunday. Uh, that's one of the things I'm I'm just so hoping we get through all this so that we can all we can all experience that really cool weekend. Now, uh, th- this is one of the things I remember Roger saying when uh, in this press conference when he bought the Speedway that you got to break you know we got to break the glass on a few things. 
And this is a perfect example of that. I was thinking when the announcement came down, one of the questions I had, we've got a ton of dirt fans here in Western PA with Lernerville and Pittsburgh's Pennsylvania Motor Speedway. You have the BC39 event out there. That'll be part of that weekend as well, correct? Yeah, that's correct. You know, um, I grew up, like I said, my dad was a fast year competitor, so we love the Indy 500. <laughs> but one of the things that was, that we did if we weren't at the Indy 500, we went to dirt tracks. I mean, we loved short track. We loved silver crown cars on the big dirt miles and, you know, all the, all of the stuff that, you know, sprint cars. So I grew up um, loving that kind of racing. And, and when I first started working at the Speedway in November of 2010, uh, one of the first people I got a chance to work with um, is a, a guy named Susie Elliott. Uh, her brother-in-law was Tony Elliott, who was, an, you know, an outstanding short tracker uh, in his day. And we started always talking about how do you get short trackers to come back to the speedway? And we laughed about, wouldn't it be cool if we could build a, build a dirt track at the speedway? And then we just kind of kept pushing it. And then when Tony Stewart retired, we were trying to figure out what to do for him. And I said, let's just build a fake dirt track uh, and have Tony come out. And while we'll put on a little exhibition for Tony. Uh, taking what he loves the most, which was short track, at the racetrack he loves the most, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And we did it as a way to say, hey, could you really build something inside turn three that would be big enough we could really race? And then it took us a couple of years, but we finally got that built and uh, had that first dirt track race in 2018. And then again last year, and it's proved to be really popular. And, and uh, for me, it's uh, I go to dirt tracks um, basically every weekend that something isn't going on at the Speedway. So now I can go to, every, go to dirt tracks and and uh, promote a race at the Speedway, too, and not just go as a fan. So it's it's been a lot of fun for me to uh, uh, to really uh, reconnect with grassroots in a real, true um, a real true connection way where people want to come race a uh, midget at the Speedway. Maybe someday we'll get some sprint cars there. Yeah, that would be awesome. Get a couple of guys from this area to head over there. That would be phenomenal. The I mean, this is a perfect uh, that weekend is a perfect opportunity for race, fran race fans from this area to spend a couple of days to take in uh, the best in the USAC series, the best in IndyCar, and the best in NASCAR, you can't get much more bang for the buck than that. You know, uh, you really can't. And if you think about between really, you just drew a line across 70, um, you know, Indiana, Ohio, and, and Pennsylvania are some of the best there's some of the best short track fans in the world that, that are in those three States and, and really true grassroots, uh, you know, grassroots fans. And, and when Indiana midget week turns into, turns into Pennsylvania midget week and all the, you know, all the different things that go on between the two, um, I think having the short track there really helps us, um, you know, give that fan who goes to their local track, whether it's Lernerville or uh, Lawrenceburg, right? Wherever they're going, um, they, ha they have a reason to come to the Speedway now and go to the Speedway and root on somebody that they've either watched grow up in racing or who's their track champion and, and now is at a, a national level in, in short track. So it's a, um, there's really nothing um, that I love doing, like I said, on the weekends, just like most folks, um, more than going to, going to some short track and sitting in the grandstands and, and, you know, getting hit with a lot of dirt. And it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. No doubt. Well, I, you have a lot of folks in this area that would agree with you there. So you had the shift to GMR Grand Prix next up from that particular month of May would have been Indy qualifying and the 500. You've had to move that 
into August. So uh, let's run over that schedule a little bit for the race fans because obviously you know, we with the date change, we want to get as many people in the seats. And I know you guys are going to honor all the people, uh, the first responders and all the medical professionals uh, that are involved with trying to fight this pandemic. And to be honest with you, I don't think anybody pays tribute to the men and women that serve serve America better than the Speedway, whether it's, you know, the stuff you guys do Memorial Weekend or what you're planning on doing here in August? Yeah, you know, that. so so first of all, it was a tough decision to, to um, you know, uh, leave Memorial Day weekend um, Sunday and, uh, you know, plan the race somewhere else. And, and in moving it, we wanted to make sure that we moved it to a location that, had a pretty good chance of actually being able to get it in, you know, hoping that we're far enough through the, the, the COVID situation and, and then uh, wanting to be able to replicate as much of the month of May um, as we could, which included, you know, qualifying weekend and, and some of the other, uh, you know, the other pieces, Fast Friday, um, Carb Day, some of those elements. So that's why we chose that August 23rd Sunday for the 500, because it did give us uh, the opportunity to have qualifying the weekend before practice the weekend ahead of that. So we are, uh, you know, we are trying to do uh, do the best we can to make it feel like um, the Indianapolis 500 will definitely celebrate our men and women who've served and those who've paid in all, the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. But we also probably going to spend some time, you know, celebrating the, the, the many heroes that are going to come out of the uh, the front lines of the COVID battle. You know, it's interesting when you have to adjust dates like that. And, you know, you always get a few people that, you know, are, are going to moan and complain. But to be honest with you, I think everybody just wants to continue the tradition. And uh, I think most race fans understand what they're going through. All the local tracks here are closed. And, and now more than ever, I think it's important that once we get back to racing, race fans need to support the local tracks and the big events because, uh, you know, we need that support going forward to not only help the racetracks, but the teams, and most importantly, the sponsors that, that make this whole sport work. You know, it, there's one thing about race fans, right, is they, they are so good at, at supporting the organizations that are either sponsoring or helping put on, um, you know, the races that they're so passionate about. So I have no doubt that once we get, that once we get through this, that the, that the race fans will continue to, um, continue to support the local tracks and the, and the, and the local companies who are uh, putting their name on the side of, of, you know, their favorite sprint car driver's uh, car or uh, putting their name, um, you know, on an event uh, as big as the Indianapolis 500, you know, a company like Gamebridge is that's doing that. It's, it's definitely a unique set of uh, fans and consumers that are really focused on saying, Hey, we know our sport happens because of the corporate involvement and we're going to make sure that we, you know, support those that are that are helping put those races on. So I feel confident that the day, the day that uh, we're all allowed to go back to the to the local short track or back to the Indianapolis Merch Speedway, that the people are still going to come. I'm excited because now it looks like I'm going to get another weekend to cover racing at the Speedway <laughs> with the uh, IndyCar Harvest G GP, and you have the Indianapolis Eight Hour Endurance Race. Uh, how exciting was that when they were shuffling the schedule and? Did the did Roger and the IndyCar come to you and say, "Hey, would you like to have a third race?" Or did you say, "Hey, let's do another race"? How'd that whole uh, program shake out? You know, I, it, really, this is another one where Roger is just really focused on trying to um, make the sport successful and um, 
give an opportunity for fans to be part of it. We had already announced the Indianapolis eight hour um, GT challenge actually in August of last summer. So that that's been around for a while. And we're really excited about having that eight hour race on, on that Sunday in the first weekend in October. Uh, and we were talking at some point, you know, three or four weeks ago, actually. And Roger mentioned, Hey, if we need another date at some point in time, maybe we should put an IndyCar race on the Saturday of the GT challenge weekend uh, as a way to uh, as a way to add more content to that weekend, but also as a way to make sure that we've got enough events uh, throughout the IndyCar season uh, to make sure uh, that we're supporting the sponsors. So, so um, Jay Fry and Roger talked to a lot of the teams and figured out, okay, well, how many races do we really feel like we we want to we want to get in as a minimum uh, if we have to start canceling events? And uh, this was one that we talked about as an option, and then uh, literally. Uh, you know, 10 days ago, Roger said, okay, I think we, I think we need to do this. Um, you know, Doug, can you reach out to, uh, to the folks, um, at, uh, SRO, um, motorsport that, that own the GT challenge series and see if they'd be, um, interested in, in working with us to, uh, to add IndyCar to the weekend. And it was, uh, it's been, uh, it's been a wild ride the last few, you know, the few days leading up to the announcement to get all that, that organized, just the number of cars that'll be there on that weekend. But, uh, we think it's going to be an awful lot of fun and, and, we're uh, we're looking forward to it. I know the IndyCar guys will look forward to coming back, and and uh, the GT Challenge uh, folks have been fantastic to work with. So, you know that it really highlights how um, a lot of how you just talked about fans will um, come back. Um, the motorsport industry as a whole has had to work together through all this. So that's one where uh, you know you had to work with the, the folks at SRO to, to make that work and to move the Indy 500 to where we did. We had to get Moto America, which is America's premier motorcycle uh, racing uh, sanctioning body to get them to move their date at the speedway to uh, the second weekend in October in order to, in order to get the 500 to land on the 23rd. And, and everybody's just been fantastic to work with, whether it's Moto America or GT challenge, and even NASCAR uh, to allow us to put the GMR uh, race on, on the NASCAR weekend. So it's, it just really shows you how everybody's working together uh, to make this work. Well, you touched on the Moto America for our two wheeled fans. That's going to be, uh, uh, after the uh, Harvest GP and the Indy 8-Hour Endurance Race. So for our two-wheeled fans, uh, they can head out and enjoy some uh, motorcycle racing at the Brickyard in October. One of the cool things you guys have on your schedule for 2021 is the Autonomous Challenge. We have a Formula SAE team here at the University of Pittsburgh, and we also have a race team that comes out of Carnegie Mellon University and I just think it's phenomenal that the Speedway is holding an event like that for the schools in your area. Well, the, the great thing about it is if you think about why the Speedway was developed or created in, in 1909, it, it was created to um, test the automobile and test and make and create these speed contests and, and, and literally in their articles of incorporation. Uh, when the founders built the Speedway, that's what it was about. And so we've talked for several years of how do we get back to those roots of <clears throat> test the new technology of the day, right? How do you how do you really do that? And then so we started talking about some sort of uh, um, next generation challenge, you know, battery powered, alternative powered, and, and we we worked with a lot of thought leaders in the space, including folks like Chevrolet and and others, and. And felt like autonomous was really uh, the right way to go. And with a local company here called ESN that, that does a lot of uh, a lot of that technology here in Indiana, we reached out to some universities, brought them in. So we got some great thought leaders uh, 
you know, the, the guy that won the first DARPA challenge has been really instrumental at Sebastian Thrun, really, um, uh, really instrumental in helping us get this to this point. And the international interest we have from schools all over the, all over the world that are going to compete in this uh, contest, uh, next in October of, uh, uh, of uh, 21 is going to be is going to be cr- crazy exciting and it's a neat way to use the speedway uh for why why it was uh you know why it was really developed so i can't wait there's some of the smartest brightest you know kids on the planet that are working in these uh, that are studying these universities are going to be racing at the speedway in identically um you know prepared autonomous race cars uh, and it's really all about the software development and the and the, and the ability to, to create a car that can learn and compete uh, at you know 180 plus miles an hour around the oval uh, without any you know without anybody controlling it. It's all going to be the software that these uh, these students develop. So it's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be crazy. We've got a lot of autonomous vehicle development going on here in Western Pennsylvania. We've got Argo AI. We've got Uber's autonomous. They built a whole small little city down along the river outside of Pittsburgh and. They're running autonomous cars down through there, and they're testing stuff in this area. So it's it's got a lot of interest for folks over here. So uh, I'm glad we were able to touch on it. For all the events you have going on, I know tickets are available. So for folks from our area and podcast listeners that want to get tickets to any of the events, how do they do that? So the best way really is just to go to IMS.com, and so our website will keep folks updated with, you know, how the COVID virus is impacting our events. So they know the dates and all, and also our, our ticket pages are, are there. Um, we're just trying to keep the, the website updated every day. You can always call the ticket office. Our ticket team's working remotely. Uh, so there were, it's a little bit challenging, um, but um, you know, online is, is really the best way. Or you can all, always send an email to tickets at brickyard.com if you want to try and speak to somebody uh, directly uh, via via email. But uh, we're trying to do the best we can to keep folks there and, uh, and keep the website updated so people are aware of what's going on and and the and the changes and additions that uh, you know that we've been making to the schedule to make sure that we get as much racing in in 2020 as we can and and hopefully by 2021 we can uh, we can all look back on this and uh, know we're all in a better place. Well, the cool thing about it is uh, this year race fans will get to make multiple trips to the speedway and right around the corner before they know it in 2021 it'll be may again and everything hopefully will be back to normal and uh we'll look back on 2020 and just pat everybody on the back for how they were able to rally around what everyone has had to go through and it'll just be another footnote in history of the greatest speedway in the world yeah i I hope that's the case i mean right now i think just like everybody all all of your folks that are that are listening, um, you know, our, our thoughts and prayers are really with those, those, uh, frontline, frontline folks, nurses, doctors, EMTs, you know, firefighters, police officers, the folks that are really, uh, dealing with, uh, all of the issues related to COVID. And then, uh, once, uh, once we get through this and, the, and we can celebrate the successes that, that they've had, then we'll, uh, then we can get back to the less important things like, uh, racing cars. Well, sounds good to us, Doug. We look forward to seeing you when we come out for the races this year. I know all the Western Pencil race fans are looking forward to it, too. I really want to thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me on and look forward to you catching up and, and speaking more as, uh, as we uh, get closer to the 104th running of the Indianapolis 500. It should, uh, it should be a great one. Special thanks to Doug Bowles for taking time out of his schedule to join us. Race fans should follow him on Twitter. He is awesome. Tri-State area race fans should plan on making a trip to Indy 
especially if you've never been there. And when you go, make sure you spend some time in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. In order to get back to the track, though, we need to keep following the CDC guidelines in regard to the coronavirus. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. There are a few ways to help lower the spread of this respiratory disease. Wash your hands. Avoid touching your face, including mouth, nose, and eyes. Cover your coughs and sneezes. Monitor your symptoms and consult with your doctor. Stay at home and away from other sick people except for medical care. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces. For more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. Next up, the driver of the number eight Husky Chocolate Chip Canassi Racing Honda in the NTT IndyCar Series, Marcus Erickson. Marcus joined the team this year after spending last season with Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports. Marcus has a deep driving resume, which includes several seasons in Formula One. Joining us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast, driver of the number eight Husky Chocolate Honda, the newest member of Chip Ganassi Racing, Marcus Erickson. Marcus, thanks for taking time out to talk with us. Thanks for having me. Marcus, when you first were a kid or maybe a teenager, I don't know, take us back to when you first became a fan of auto racing and what was it about racing that caught your attention? I think for me, ever, you know, as long as I can remember, I've always been interested and, and, and sort of drawn to, to cars. And I was always playing with cars as a kid. And I remember some of my earliest memories uh, is, is watching Formula One and IndyCar on, on weekends with my with my dad. So I, I always had this very, very young age, the interest uh, of, of cars and racing. And uh, and that's how I got into it. I'm, I'm not from a motorsport family. My my dad always had an interest for for racing and cars, but he never did any of it. But um, yeah, luckily he, he brought me to a go kart uh, rental car center when I was a kid, and that got me hooked uh, and, and sort of yeah made me realize what I wanted to do with, with my life really. <laughs> And then, uh, so you started, uh, you know, at, at a young age with go-karts and then when did you make that transition approximately what age roughly did you make that transition to try and become a professional race car driver? Yes. Yeah, so I, I started off with go-karts like sort of as a kid when I was nine years old and that was sort of year by year getting more and more serious. And the last few years of go-karts, I was doing not only in my home country, Sweden, but also around in Europe uh, racing. So uh, I did go-karts until I was 15. Uh, and I think the last couple of years in go-karts, it was going really well. I was winning Swedish championships and, and other big races in, in Europe. So I sort of uh, knew what I wanted to do, but we as a family didn't have any, any money to take the steps up the car and um, so it didn't really you know it was more a dream and uh, more than anything and uh, to do anything else than go-kart but then yeah i got the i don't want to call it lucky but but i was at the right right, right place at the right time let's say and got picked up by this talent uh, agency that was started up by uh, a, a guy that probably a lot of americans know that's called kenny brack uh and then him and a couple other guys uh, started up this talent uh, agency trying to help some Swedish drivers to 
to get sponsors and investors to to take the step up and 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 go racing and and they picked me up and and helped me take the step to racing cars when I was sixteen and that's when I sort of uh, understood and knew that this is going to be my my career and my life. So Kenny Breck, you caught Kenny Breck's eyes. And you signed with those guys. And what was the first professional division they put uh, th- they put you in? And then how did that progress up to uh, getting an opportunity in Formula One? Yeah, so the first thing they did was they, they put me on a quite extensive testing program in different categories. But they picked the Formula BMW UK uh, as my first series. And that was back in 2007. And the plan for that was to be a two-year project in that category. But uh, it went so well that I managed to win that championship already in the first year, which was uh, a great uh, sort of start to my single-seater career. And, and, you know, as in racing, you know, people want to see the unexpected. And that was a bit what happened with me there. You know, a kid from Sweden showing up. 16 years old and just wins the championship out of nowhere. Uh, and that's really helped my, um, yeah, to get focused on me in, in, in the motorsport world. And then after that, I did a couple of years in Formula 3, uh, both in British Formula 3 and actually one year in Japanese Formula 3. Managed to win the Japanese Formula 3 championship. That was also a big uh, box to tick. Uh, and then after that, I went into GP2. Actually, did four years of GP2 racing, which is now Formula 2, so the step just below Formula 1. Uh, didn't have the best of years there. I, I won quite a few races, but never managed to really string together a full season. So I think my best end of end of the year result was six in my last year. But I had some really strong sort of performances, and that helped me to get the chance in, in Formula One. Then in in twenty fourteen with the now uh, non existing KTM team. And so that's sort of how my career went uh, in, in single theaters before Formula One. And then uh, talk a little bit about the transition from Formula One, how you ended up over in the NTT IndyCar series. Yeah, so I did uh, five years of Formula One. And uh, yeah, it was great years. You know, I was. Uh, very happy to, to have uh, become a Formula One driver. And, you know, in the first couple of years, it was, it was it's amazing. Uh, and then, but then the problem with Formula One, I think, as, as many uh, drivers can agree, is that uh, unless you're in one of the top teams, it, it's very difficult to show what you can do. And uh, towards the end of my Formula One career, it was, uh, yeah, it was tough because I'd always been every year with, with smaller teams that didn't really have the resources to fight uh, higher up in the in the field. So back in the yeah, second half of 2018, uh, we were having quite a decent year there with Alfa Romeo, but then they signed Kimi Reikinen, world champion Kimi Reikinen, and, um, and then, yeah, my, my sort of spot in, in, on the grid was, was not there anymore. So I had to look at other options for my career. And straight away when that happened, I told my management that IndyCar is something I really would like to, to look at and see if there's any opportunities. And uh, yeah, we reached out to a few teams and it was a lot of interest from, from IndyCar teams to, to give me a chance. And uh, luckily, Sam and, and Rick at the uh, 
again and gave me a, a shot at their seat there in the number seven car. So got that chance in the IndyCar series for, for last year in 2019. So it was, uh, yeah, it was what I wanted to do when I, uh, sort of went, when the F1, uh, options were not there. Then for me, IndyCar was something really I wanted to do because I felt like IndyCar is the strongest, one of the strongest series in the world. And also what really, really is nice with IndyCar is that it's a series where anyone can win. So every weekend you go to a race, you know that anyone can win. And that sort of, for a driver, it's such a nice feeling. So that was something I'd missed a lot when being in Formula One for all those years. So yeah, I was really happy that I managed to, to get a spot in, in the IndyCar series. When, when you look at that, it, it's what I think, and, and I think, you know, if we were to ask somebody like Alexander Rossi, who came from Formula One too, uh, it's really a situation in the IndyCar series where the driver is so much more of a factor in the car. Not that you're not a factor in the car at F1, but it's really what it's about in F1 is more budget and and the, the you know you got Ferrari and Mercedes are the two uh, you know Mercedes is really the upper echelon team there and it's really difficult for the driver to make a difference and is that really what you can see in the IndyCar series is because of the way their rules packages and the way they can limit what the teams can do with the cars it's really an opportunity for the driver to show his ability yeah, I agree. I think when I try and describe it, it's, it's, it's what I say is Formula One is more a manufacturer's championship where, you know, the ones that can build the best car is going to be most successful. The ones that have the most resources and money is usually the most uh, successful. Of course, also you need to have a driver that can drive the car. You know, it's, uh, it goes without saying, but in F1, all the drivers, like in any top motorsports, are very, very competitive and very good drivers. But instead, if you look in, in IndyCar, it's more of a driver's championship and actually a driver and engineer's championship because it's that uh, relationship between a driver and his engineer that's going to make the difference. But it's so tight in IndyCar, so it's so competitive, especially up top, um, that you need to have a, a driver that can drive the maximum out of the car, but also an engineer to work with the driver that can really try and get them lost a couple of hundreds or tenths of a second out of the car with the small setup suite. Uh, and for me, that's something that's so great with IndyCar that, you know, it really drives uh, that sort of work between driver, engineer, and the work from a driver's perspective, just focusing on, on what you can do with the driving, et cetera. Uh, all that makes, uh, makes, makes the world in IndyCar. And I think from purely a driver perspective, it's, it's something really, really nice. Now, when you look back on uh, 2019, how would you categorize your season? You had some ups and some downs in there, uh, but I would think that it would have to be difficult for someone like yourself because in IndyCar, there's such a limited amount of testing and you're going to tracks that you've never been to before. Yeah, it was, it was a difficult year because, like you say, I, I came to America without any knowledge of any of the tracks. It was actually only one track I'd been to before, and that was the Circuit of the Americas because I'd been there with, with F1. The rest of the calendar, the other 15 races, was all brand new to me. And I only had, I think, was it four, three or four test days before the season started. So I was pretty, yeah, going into every weekend with, like, just trying to get up to speed and learn the tracks and, and 
learn the car as well because you know all of these top guys in the car have been here for for many years and have a lot of experience so uh, both on tracks and then the cars and, and american racing so it was a big uphill battle but i really enjoyed it and i like you said i had some ups and downs uh, i think when i look back at at the, the season i would say results wise it was disappointing i was expecting more but i still like had some really strong performances. Uh, some of the highlights being the Detroit podium. I scored the second place there behind Scott Dixon. That was a great result and, and, and great feeling to, to show that what I can do. And also, to be honest, my overall performance on the on the ovals was very very strong, uh, especially since I'd never done anything like it, and I felt like I had some really strong runs on the ovals throughout the year. So uh, I think you can look at it ways. One way is that the results were not as good as I had hoped, but also the performances, if you look at it the other way, was was pretty good at times. Well, Mike Hall always likes to say that really with the limited amount of testing, that when you get a driver who's in his second or third year in the series, after getting through the tracks one or two times, they really start to show their uh, talent and their ability and I think you kind of touched on it when you talked about Detroit. You know, you finished second to Dixon, and that's the doubleheader weekend. So you were able to log a lot of laps and get a lot of experience at the track, and it really showed in that result. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually that's one of the points. When I spoke to Mike, uh, Mike Hall, in the, you know, before I signed the Ganassi, and we were speaking, um, we were speaking, you know, uh, about different things, and that was one of the things that both me and Mike said, you know, and I said as well, you know, that just look at the Detroit week, and it was the only track where I had a bit more knowledge of the track uh, in the in the second race there, second, uh, yeah, on the Sunday, and 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 then I showed what I could do. So I was saying that, you know, imagine what I can do in a second year when it's like that every every weekend I go to a track. So uh, it was definitely a, a selling point for me. <laughs> Well, Kenny used to drive for Chip back in the day, and uh, so I'm sure that had to help uh, get uh, help in your ability to talk with those guys, and obviously your natural talent attracted uh, your skills, attracted the team. So uh, talk a little bit about how that deal came together. Yeah, so actually Kenny is not involved in, in, uh, in me anymore. We, we stopped working together a few years back. Uh, before Formula One, so now I have my manager AEL, who was also there from the start, actually. And um, but, but yeah, we we sort of got in touch with with uh, the Ganassi guys um, around the same time when the McLaren deal was announced with SPM, because then we sort of knew that they wanted to do a bit of a fresh start in, in SPM with everything that was happening with McLaren. So. Uh, we started to look out on uh, different options, and and then yeah, Ganassi was quite eager uh, as a team to add another car uh, to take the fight with Penske and and Andretti, who, who had more cars on the grid. And uh, yeah, we were talking, and and uh, I felt like there was a mutual interest there um, uh, between us and and Ganassi to make something happen. And at the same time, there was a uh, this uh, Swedish company called Husky Chocolate, who was uh, eager to get on the IndyCar scene. So it was just like, you know, like it happens sometimes in this world. A lot of things that sort of click together and, and, and we managed to get the deal done and, 
and I'm really proud to you know to be representing Kip Ganassi Racing now and and, and has the chocolate as uh, my primary sponsor. So yeah, it's, uh, it was uh, it was nice how we got together, and it's a great opportunity for me as a driver. Well, it's funny how sometimes life is all about timing. You know, when when you can exactly. get everything to line up like that. So congratulations to you on that uh we're looking forward obviously to seeing you guys on the track at some point in time uh you did get a chance to go down to coda and test a little bit with the team and uh i think you guys tested at sebring as well i don't know if if you had a chance um i I talked to scott earlier in the year and uh right before saint pete I, i know you guys were down at sebring so how did the the seat time go in the car and and how has the integration with the team been with the limited amount of time you guys have had yeah i mean like you said it hasn't been a lot of track time so far but uh, but i still spent a lot of time with the, the guys in the team and, and you know with the engineering group and mechanics and so on i am based here in indianapolis so yeah, i'm close by to the shop so over the winter i spent a lot of time there building up them relationships uh, so that's been going really well. It's a great bunch of people in, in the team, so that's been really good. And I, I think also the, the tests we did was uh, was good. You know, I got uh, adjusted to the car quite quickly and uh, felt uh, comfortable in it, especially the Sebring test. I felt was a very good uh, day of testing, and I was on the pace uh, matching Scott and Felix. And, and we all know that Scott and Felix are two of the best drivers and fastest drivers on the grid. So. Yeah, it felt like we, we had done a really good preparation. It's just a shame that we couldn't go out and show that in, in St. Pete and, and on, onwards after it. But uh, we're going to get there eventually, and then we're going to make sure that we're ready to, to show what we can do. So since the uh, we were down in St. Pete when all that went down and not being able to race, I know it frustrated everybody. So how have you been uh, passing the time? I, I, know, I know you're... Uh, a sim racer and you've gotten a sim set up and have been participating in the iRacing IndyCar Challenge and I know a lot of fans have been excited to at least be able to connect with you guys on that level and you guys by uh, the last couple of weeks you've put a couple of races on and and folks have enjoyed that because it at least kind of gives uh, whets the appetite a little bit so to speak for the race fans out there so how's that been going for you and are you enjoying it? Yeah, it's been strange times. It's just like waiting times. But, uh, but yeah, I, I did uh, invest in, in a home simulator, which was obviously good timing with all this happening. And uh, uh, I'm completely new to that sim, sim world. And, and I've learned that a lot of, or not a lot, but a few of the drivers in IndyCar has, has been spending all the time on, on, on simulators for, for quite a few years so it's been a bit of a challenge there to get up to speed on it but it's been fun and, and obviously we had time to practice it so I spent quite a bit of time on, on that one and I also do a lot of training I see it as a chance to get even even better prepared for when the, eventually the season starts so I've been training a lot uh, obviously it's a bit difficult with all the gyms closed down but I'm doing training in my apartment and going out for runs and, and bike rides uh, um, pretty much every day so i've been trying to use the time uh, as much as possible to, to make it uh, uh yeah to develop my, myself you know and, and make sure that i'm better and faster and stronger than i've ever been and i think i'm talking about the, the indica challenge the, the 
uh, virtual uh, IndyCar races. I think that's a great way that IndyCar has been trying to, like you say, interact with the fans and, and sort of put some racing on, even though it's in, in the virtual world. I think it's still better than nothing. And uh, that's been fun as well. You know, it's fun to see so many drivers, like most of the drivers are, are doing it now uh, in the IndyCar series. And I think that's great. Unfortunately for me, <laughs> the first two races have got taken out on the first lap in both of them. So that's a bit annoying, but, you know, keep on trying. Hopefully this weekend will be a bit better, but uh, it's all good fun. Well, it's funny. Chip Chip has a saying, you know, you can't win the race on the first lap. And even in the sim world, it seems <laughs> like guys, you know, once they strap the helmet on, some some of them lose their minds. So, Yeah, unfortunately, but, you know, that's how it goes. That's racing sometimes. Uh, but yeah, I've been a bit unlucky there the last uh, the first two races, but uh, I'm thinking third time, uh, third time lucky now for me. So I'm gonna have a good week uh, race this weekend instead. Well, Michigan's big and wide like Fontana, so there's there. Hopefully, instead of running into you guys, can avoid running into one another, and you guys can put on a great show for the fans. When you're not racing, training, uh, what are some of the other things that Marcus Erickson likes to do uh, uh, away from the track? I love ice hockey. So I'm a massive ice hockey fan. I, I used to play ice hockey until I was uh, 16. So when I started to drive cars, uh, I had to sort of make a choice uh, which career path to go along. And I choose motorsports. But it didn't mean that I stopped uh, caring for ice hockey. So I've always been a big fan. Uh, I play in the winter for fun with my friends every now and then. But yeah, I follow it a lot. Uh, the Swedish League, but obviously also the NHL. So I've been speaking quite a bit with Chip about that. I had to go up to Pittsburgh actually and then watch uh, Penguins games with uh, with him. So that's some definitely on my to do list here when when NHL kicks off again. And, and yeah, uh, I would love to do that. I've been to a few race, a uh, few games uh, over in the NHL uh, last year, uh, and yeah, so much fun. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to go and watch a uh, Pittsburgh game. Oh, we got to get you hooked up with Patrick Hornquist. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh, we 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 have a few good players around in 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 America, that's for sure. But yeah, he's he's a really good one. He's uh, I don't know him personally, but yeah, that would be it would be awesome. Who are some of your favorite NHL players since since you're a hockey guy? So I like Eric Carlson. He's also a friend of mine. Um, he had a bit of a tougher year now in San Jose, but yeah, he's been obviously one of the best for many years. Uh, also the King, King Henrik in Henrik Lundqvist. Uh, it's also, I was a goalie and he was someone that I looked up to a lot growing up. Um, a big fan of him. Uh, I mean, Sidney Crosby, of course, Conor McDavid. Uh, these guys are just unreal. And, you know, just to watch them play is uh, very special. And, um, yeah. And then, you know, growing up as well, Peter Forsberg was one of my idols and you know I think he's still one of the best players ever so yeah I I have a lot of favorites <laughs> absolutely Forsberg was an unbelievable player and uh you know Lundquist is another one too so Pittsburgh is a crazy hockey town uh they're a crazy sports town to be honest with you whether it's the Steelers the football team the Pirates baseball team the Penguins hockey team uh, Pittsburgh is a crazy sports town. So that's one of the reasons we I wanted to talk to you because I want to introduce you to all of the 
Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania sports fans and race fans. We've got a crazy racing culture here with uh, dirt tracks around the area. We have two small dirt tracks, Lernerville being one of them, Pittsburgh's Pennsylvania Motor Speedway being the other. So uh, we have this kind of like, it almost has a little bit of almost cult-like following for the racing world around here. And Chip's a great connection to the major leagues of racing with the IndyCar team, with the NASCAR team. He's had the sports car team in the past. I don't think he's going to be out of sports cars long between you and me. I think he's definitely going to get back into that. So uh, that that's uh, just an awesome opportunity for you to be involved with an organization like that. And I know you got to be excited that eventually when the season gets going to, to you know, jump in that car and uh, get the Husky chocolate car to the front and, you know, work with two, uh, as you mentioned, two of the best in the business between Dixon and Rosenquist. Felix last year really started to come on towards the end of the year. And uh, I think you and him both are going to open some eyes this year. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I can't, uh, can't wait to get to get back in the car, you know, and, and get out racing. And, and like you say, it's going to be a great, great year when we get, when we finally get going. So yeah, it's just, uh, eager, eager to, to get there, uh, hopefully sooner rather than later. Well, we appreciate you taking time out of your morning to talk with us. Uh, we're excited. Uh, it's crazy when you talked a little bit about how you were a goalie. Last week on the podcast, I had Indy Pro 2000 driver Colin Kaminsky on. He's actually a goaltender for the University of Pittsburgh hockey team. So we got to figure out a way to maybe get you to get somebody to fire some pucks at you two or something. Yeah, that's not fun. Just make sure the chip uh, agrees with it first. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe what we got to do is we got to get Chip and the Penguins, and we can tie Kaminsky in somehow. Maybe we I'll work on Chip and the Penguins, see what I can do on this end for you. That would be a lot of fun. That sounds like a lot of fun, yeah. I'm in. Come in. <laughs> awesome. Marcus Erickson, we appreciate you taking time out of your day. Uh, we look forward to getting back to racing sometime soon. Uh, on behalf of everybody here in Pittsburgh, we wish you the best of luck on your 2020 season. And most importantly, stay safe over the next couple of weeks until we can get over the hump here with this uh, coronavirus pandemic. And uh, I know everybody's going to look forward to getting back to the track and putting these dark days behind us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to introduce Marcus to Western Pennsylvania area race fans and great to find out he's a Sidney Crosby fan. Let's hope Chip can get Marcus to a Penguins game when the puck drops again. COVID-19, better known as coronavirus, has spread throughout the world. Symptoms of this respiratory disease may include fever, cough, and shortness of breath. These symptoms may show up 2 to 14 days after exposure. If you are experiencing these symptoms and have come into contact or are in an area with an ongoing outbreak, please call a hotline and or consult with a physician. Clean and disinfect high-touch surfaces. For more information, please visit cdc.gov forward slash COVID-19. Thank you. Our final guest is Cranberry Township native Travis Geisler. Geisler is the competition director for Team Penske, but he grew up racing on tracks in the western Pennsylvania area. Joining us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast, the competition director for Team Penske, Pittsburgh's own, or should I say Cranberry Township's own, Travis Geisler. Travis, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on today. 
for the young race fans who are new to the sport, they may not know how you got into racing. They may know you as the competition director for Team Penske, but a lot of us, uh, should I say older folk, know how you were exposed to it. So uh, explain to everybody that's listening how you first got into racing. Yeah, sure. I started racing with my dad. You know, I think most people know him around the areas, you know, dirt late model driver that kind of run everywhere up there and kind of grew up at Lernerville and Pittsburgh and Motordrome and all those places. And, you know, I can't count how many races we went to over the years, but that's really what got me started in sport and kind of started my love for, for going racing every weekend. And through that, I you know worked on his cars as much as I could. I worked for Ed Free for a little bit over his place um, whenever he had Franklin going and all that stuff. And I was pretty young and needed a little bit of money. He helped me out there. So that's probably my first real job, I guess, in racing. And then moved on. I kind of started my own racing. I ran go-karts, you know, Blanket Hill and Slippery Rock and Noggle and some of the other tracks all around and had a great time doing that and really enjoyed, you know, kind of the the competition side of it with myself, you know, doing it, not just going and, and watching my dad and, it was tough because he was still racing every weekend. So I uh, relied on my girlfriend, who's now my wife, that was a little older than me and could drive, actually. So she was my first uh, first crew chief, I guess. It took me racing, and you know we enjoyed that together and moved on to limited late models at Pittsburgh and then um, decided I, I really liked the NASCAR thing. I really liked you know kind of the, the idea of being able to race for a living and not just as a hobby. And, I uh, moved over to the asphalt world and some of the local people there really took me under their wing. Jamie Bergman, who had a team going at the time, kind of gave me a space to to go and start learning asphalt racing, which was something that, although my dad knew a lot about racing, didn't know a whole lot about asphalt racing. So I needed somewhere to go. And that group uh, really was instrumental in getting me kind of my feet under me uh, when it came to asphalt racing. Mark Catone was in the shop there and he was kind of one of the best guys at, at motordrome that's probably ever raced asphalt out there and him and his crew chief Keith Shirey and a bunch of guys all just really stepped in and and educated me on what asphalt racing was about and kind of kept going through that had pretty good success in that and um, decided at one point to go and you know I was done with high school so I needed to go get an education I went to uh, Vanderbilt and got a mechanical engineering degree in case the driving thing never worked out uh, meanwhile, I was able to, to run some ASA races, some ARCA races, kind of keep moving up the ladder a little bit, ended up racing uh, a dozen what's now Xfinity Series races in 2004 and enjoyed that, but uh, kind of ran out of talent or ran out of money, uh, I think both at the same time. So decided to fall back on my engineering degree and went to work for Robert Yates Racing for uh, 2006 as a race engineer. And I got to travel a lot there, started on the Xfinity Series, and moved up to the Cup Series, and I really kind of got my feet wet on, you know, what racing for a living was like at that level, and moved over to Team Penske, and uh, haven't really looked back since. You know, it's been really, I would say, the only place I've really worked and, and made, you know, made a home, made a career out of, and it's been an absolutely fantastic place to go to work every day, and I've gotten a chance to work with some of the best in the business, and certainly been a fun road. Now, when you talk about the transition when you were driving uh, from dirt to asphalt, for all the guys that are that are home thinking they you know they run dirt, thinking they want to try asphalt, what advice would you give to them, and and what can you talk about? Uh, what uh, kind of light can you shed on the big difference between the two? 
Yeah, it's just a level of, of discipline and kind of finesse that is so different. You know, I think that I was pretty fortunate. Most of my dirt experience was actually at, at Pennsylvania Motor Speedway in a limited late model. That's kind of what I ran the season of. And to be honest, that probably wasn't all that drastically different. You know, at that time, I think Pittsburgh's probably always been this way. You know, whenever it gets kind of slick and dry, it just, you have to really be gentle with all your inputs. You can't really horse the car around where, you know, I ran a race or two at Lernerville and man, that's just like an entirely different world there. So, you know, as different as Pittsburgh is from Lernerville from a driving style, probably asphalt is one more step the other way of, of just being very smooth, very gentle with your inputs and, and really starting to, to analyze your, you know, what you're doing in the car and thinking through it all versus kind of, um, man, the high speed reactionary type of driving, which I would call Lernerville, where you're just right at the edge of what your body can react to. I think asphalt's a lot more mental where you're thinking through what you're going to do with the car, where you're going to put it. it. Takes a lot more discipline to hit your marks perfectly every lap, you know, to hit the same spot on the track and just be consistent that way. You know, where I think when you're running it at different places, you're chasing chasing wherever the groove's moving to and dirt, it moves so much faster on a dirt track than it does on asphalt. It still does move some, but most of the time, I would say weekly racing, the groove doesn't move very much. Not like a, a cup race where you run 500 miles and the track will move from the bottom to the top, back to the bottom. Um, definitely a different set of skills, but anybody that, that's good at one, I feel like can learn the other if they decide that's what they want to do. And then you made the transition. You talked about going to school and getting your mechanical engineering degree. Uh, I, I think of guys like Ryan Newman, uh, Chris Simmons, who works on Ganassi's IndyCar program. He used to drive Indy Lights. Uh, then he moved up to be the uh, engineer on Frankiti and Dixon's car. So explain that transition and how someone who's into that kind of thing can whet that appetite for competition in that manner. Yeah, I was really fortunate when I moved over to the cup side at Penske. Ryan Newman was the driver I worked for, so I think that that definitely helped me bridge the gap because it was a driver that really knew about the car. He knew the engineering side of it. He knew you know, what I knew um, as far as you know, what kind of schooling I'd had and stuff. So I think he really helped me probably translate a lot of stuff or just kind of put the things together. But it's certainly a, a great background to have. I think having that experience of being in the car, understanding what it's like when the car is doing certain things, understanding the challenges of going to different racetracks and trying to adjust and feeling that, you know, there are places that you are better or, or worse as a driver. And why is that? You know, why is your body just better suited for certain styles of racetracks? I think you see that in, in every level of racing, there's drivers that are just better at certain places. I think the very, very best can be good everywhere, but there's still some tracks that just stand out that, you know, even Jimmy Johnson is at Martinsville or, you know, you look at Kevin Harvick at Phoenix and you start to figure out why those things are and you use your, you know, your background to figure out why you have those strengths and weaknesses. But I think the, you know, the, the ability to have the mechanical understanding of the car, but also the real life experience of being in there with, you know, hey, it's loud, it's noisy, you got stuff smells, you got different things going on, you get all different noises that you're trying to interpret, you know, where you are in a racetrack, you hear different things, there's all that sort of thing that you can now apply to your craft. 
as an engineer trying to tune a car for somebody else and you know what questions to ask and, you know, kind of how to filter through this stuff. So I think it's a, it's a great foundation. You know, it taught me a whole lot about um, how to think and how to break down a problem, which I think is probably the most important thing that I took out of school was the ability to look at a huge, difficult problem that I couldn't understand as a whole and break it up into little parts and pieces and start to solve each little bit that I could. I think that's a lot of what racing's like. You have this huge, big problem. You can't solve it at one time. You've got to break it down into each part. You know, whether you're breaking the corner down, you're breaking down how the engine's performing or whatever it may be, um, that skill set's probably been the most applicable for me. When you look back at when you were growing up, uh, one of the things I have a couple of friends of mine who are teachers, and I, I always talk about uh, one of the friends of mine, she was talking, she teaches math, and she was saying, you know, she was having problems, you know, reaching a couple of the kids in the class, and her husband pipes in, you know, we're all sitting around the fire pit having a couple beers, and he's like, well, every damn word problem you give him is, you know, Betsy bakes a dozen cookies and cuts them in half, he's like, do you ever equate it to something that guys are into like that? So I was wondering if you had any advice that you could give teachers uh, that are involved in science, technology, engineering, math, on how the racing world can uh, help reach students. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the possibilities are kind of endless because there's just so much math involved in every piece, every piece of going racing, and you know, I think it it can influence anybody at a young age. It's certainly what kept me motivated and what kind of kept me going to school. I think otherwise I, I would have given up on it a long time ago and just gone racing. But the fact that there was, there were teachers who were able to engage me with different topics, you know, the simplest thing you can look at is fuel mileage. You know, what's, what's, you have miles per gallon, you have a mile and a half track, you have a 267 lap race. What are your, what are your fuel windows? Like that's a word problem to me. That's just so fundamental uh, to racing or to just any kind of cars in general. But then it's, it applies some math. It gets people's brains thinking, you know, why does it work this way? And you can continue to complicate it as, as high as you want, depending on what level of student you have. And I think that's the fun part of racing is you can always, you know, you can simplify it down to you started in the right front tire, had 20 pounds of air in it. And when you ended, you had 28, what did you gain? If you're in a low level, or you can go all the way up to you know high school where you're talking about how long the tire ran, what was the rate of change, what was, you know you can have uh, the derivative of, of the air pressure gain and make a student figure that out. And those are the things that I think as teachers, which I would say during this crazy time that we're in right now, I've become a teacher, so I'm starting to learn some of the skills uh, to teach my kids who are at home. You, know, you just got to get to apply to real world stuff, which is what teachers do best. Um, you know, I think the ones that are really good at reaching their kids figure out what motivates each kid. It might be basketball, it might be racing, whatever it is. Just tailor it to them, and they'll they'll take it and run from there because they actually get interested in it. Great stuff. Talk a little bit about exactly what you do for Penske as a competition director. You talked about how you started out as an engineer. And uh, what's the, the level of progression up to the competition director? So race engineer, I'd say, is kind of a technical secretary to the crew chief. So they essentially um, do a lot of setup work. They go through and, and decide what, 
entire data looks like. They make recommendations. They try to figure out fuel mileage. You know, do a lot of the the background calculations and then make suggestions to the crew chief who is ultimately making the final decisions on what the setup of the car is going to be. So I did the race engineer role for a couple of years and then I moved into the crew chief role and did that for a few years and then uh, was put into this role, which honestly didn't exist when I started in it. We kind of created a new position. You know, I think during that time, racing was becoming much more specialized to where a lot of the people who were working on the cars weren't going to the racetrack back in the day. Racetrack was all the same people that were at the shop. Everybody was, was doing both things. They knew exactly what was going on. They were all part of it. Now we have a whole lot more people that never go to the racetrack or actually see the car race that work on it or work on, you know, the aerodynamics of it or some aspect of it. That, that don't get that connection. So a lot of what I do is go to the racetrack, work with the teams, you know, sit with the drivers, the crew chiefs, understand, you know, what the race engineers are working on, try to try to see what areas we need to improve. What are other teams doing that, that maybe they're getting ahead of us and come back and spend a lot of time with all of these different groups of people and try to help guide them on what we need to be working on to get better. So that's probably my most important role is kind of showing the guys that are working on the stuff Monday through Friday, what the guys who are racing with it on weekends are fighting. How hard is it to get the consistency out of the different cars? You know, you, you have three different drivers, you know, when you throw the Wood Brothers and Paul Menard in there, you have three different styles of driving and I'm sure each crew chief has to tailor what they're trying to do to what the driver's looking for. So on any given race weekend, how different are the cars and how hard is it to get all three of them consistent? Yes, yeah, definitely a, a consistent battle, I would say. But the cars themselves, we keep very consistent. The actual build of the chassis, the build of the body, you know, those things we try to keep pretty consistent between all of them. We get together and make some decisions because it's so inefficient to try to build all different cars for everybody. Just having parts and pieces and different designs of things, it just kind of becomes prohibitive. So the crew chiefs and I get together with, you know, different groups from the engineering department kind of talk about what are we going to need at Texas? Okay, what are the, what are the car build specifics for this one? And everybody kind of comes to some conclusion there. Then when you get down to the actual setups of springs and bars and, you know, what wedge or knows what you're running, that starts to get down to more of the, you know, the crew chief level. I think our philosophy is if, if things are going well and we're running reasonable, everybody should be able to get to the other person's setup in between a practice session. So you shouldn't have to cut the front clip off to get the same as somebody else. You should be able to change some springs, change your weight, distributions around maybe some air pressures cambers and get to where the other person is because inevitably you're going to have a car that's better you know that there's just the way it goes whether the driver's more in tune with that track or just the you know all the combination the setup choices that were made they're in a better place and sometimes drivers can just put in somebody else's stuff and go be better sometimes that doesn't work and understanding what each driver needs and what differences they need between each other becomes a bit of a skill as well where you know maybe joey always wants the car just a little bit tighter than what brad would want it so if brad's really good 
you can't just bolt exactly what Brad has into Joey's car, but you can tweak it a little bit and probably get it pretty darn good for him. And those are kind of the things you learn over time as you race with guys week in and week out. With Roger's expansive organization you guys have uh, under one roof, you have the Cup program, you have the IndyCar program, and you have the IMSA program. Do those programs interact much, and, and can you guys learn something from the other two, or can they learn something from what you guys are doing? I, I know the cars are entirely different to a certain extent, but it's, it still comes down, uh, you know, they're still race cars in a sense. Yeah, fundamentally, we still have the same problems. You know, there's still the same types of challenges that exist. And I think there's certainly departments that lend better to sharing in the carbon fiber department. They don't really care if they're making a part for an Indy car, a cup car, or an Insta car. It's, it's a carbon fiber part. They understand that. So we're able to leverage groups like that, you know, the machine shop, things, things of that nature that really are a perfect seamless integration between all of them. So those guys can all kind of work together. I think when you get down to, you know, specific car builds and things, it gets a little more challenging, but you still have the ability to kind of look around and see what trends other people, what areas are they finding gains? You know, maybe, maybe their rules allow for something that they, that you can't do, but you could kind of understand the path that they're on. And I think some of those things are, are important you know, to, to make sure that you're staying in tune with other forms of racing in the world. You get so narrow minded uh, or just, you know, get the blinders on when you're racing 30 weeks in a row and, and you can't lose track of where everything else in the world is going, but there's still a lot of development happening other places. I think we do a fairly good job of, of integrating that. And I think that um, it happens pretty organically rather than try to force, you know, go over there and talk to them. It, it's more of a, as we've had employees move around between departments and we had a race engineer on the cup side that there was an opening on the IndyCar side and he was interested to go into that world. And he went over there and, you know, it's been very successful. Now there's somebody that can kind of translate for us. You know, it's somebody the NASCAR people can just go talk to and know that that guy can kind of put the IndyCar world in terms of what we could do. And I think those kind of people, as they move around our company, kind of, cross-pollinate the different skill sets do you do anything with the other two programs or you focus strictly on the nascar program yeah i'm pretty much only on the nascar side you know other than just trying to help where i can from a you know learnings and you know shared best practices type stuff uh i think that our our schedule is just kind of prohibitive to doing anything else at this point uh, here in Pennsylvania, and I know down in North Carolina, everybody's under the stay-at-home order. What are you? What can you guys accomplish, or what do you? Uh, what do you have uh, some of your guys trying to do, and what can they do from home since nobody can be in the shop? Yeah, we have a fair amount of people that are are still working pretty hard from home. All of our engineering people can work from home essentially. You know, if you're doing CFD analysis, which is basically a you know wind tunnel on your computer, you can still be running through you know, different cases with that. So we have that kind of moving. I think you have um, the race teams themselves. We certainly understand that when we do get to go back racing, we're probably going to do it uh, at a rate that's a little faster than what we're used to from an event standpoint to try to get the whole season in. You know, there's discussion around all sorts of different things to try to get all of our races in, but we know that's probably going to mean 
we're going to have more events in a shorter amount of time. So we need to be kind of worked out on our setup sheets and things, our build sheets. So we're still trying to go through the best we can and decide those things so that the assembly shop and fab shop and everybody can kind of get their game plans together for when the lights do turn back on. I think, um, you know, there's, there's certain things we're all working on of, you know, what efficiencies can we, can we create, um, to where we can go race that many races in a short amount of time, but do it at the same level that we would do it over, you know, the course of a whole year. So, those are all, you know, different projects that are going. We actually have a little bit of stuff going. Um, you know, we have some manufacturing capability where we're trying to help with some of the face shields and some of the different needs of, you know, personal protection equipment for the medical industry. And some of our partners are involved in some of those projects. And we certainly have some capability. So we actually do have some people in working on on that stuff, trying to create some things to to help those that are really on the front lines of this war and, um, you know, are fighting it for us every day. That's awesome to hear and great to know. And I, I know your manufacturer partner Ford, they've stepped up big time with uh, personal protective equipment. They're doing an awesome job. They they're I saw a piece yesterday on how they converted one of their uh, uh, plants in Michigan to make uh, ventilators. So it's really great to see everybody rallying around and trying to defeat this, you know, just this nightmare everybody's dealing with. Yes, you know, I think that um, there, there's plenty of plenty of noise out there, positive and negative. It, it's it's kind of all a mixed bag. But when you really look down at, at the people who are involved in, in taking action and actually trying to to move things forward and fix this, it's incredible to see the you know the the commitment level of the people in the healthcare industry is just phenomenal to me. You know, those people are are really the heroes of this for all of us. You know, whether they're out, you know, keeping us safe or, you know, we're kind of going through this struggle where people, I guess, are, you know, the social distancing hard, staying at home's hard, people don't want to do it, but can you even imagine every day going and working 12, 14 hour shifts of dealing with this stuff? You know, it's um, really puts in perspective, you know, what they're asking the rest of us to do seems pretty simple. Um, but yeah, it's been great to see the response of, of all of our manufacturers and it's, it's what, what it takes, you know, it's a wartime type economy when you get to this situation and everybody needs to get focused on fixing the problem so we can all kind of get back to doing what we, what we do best is, you know, living as free Americans. How are you keeping the kids busy and how are you and your wife handling having everybody at home? Cause uh, you kind of touched on it before. Eventually, when you guys go back to racing, uh, you know, especially with a 38 race schedule, you guys, the NASCAR side of things is going to be nuts. I've seen some of the things that they're, some of the ideas that they're floating out there, and you might only have two, three days between racing if that's what they decide to do. So it's kind of weird. You have all this family time right now, but it's not typical family time. Yeah, it's certainly a situation where you know you have to go through the school stuff, you know, we're trying to do the homeschool thing and handle all that stuff and, and get through, you know, how all that works, but also really enjoy the time that we do have. I, I've never had this much time with my, with my family. You know, I've traveled my whole life, you know, since, since they've been around and, you know, my wife and I've been together for a really long time, but we've never had this kind of time either because I've pretty much been on the road where I travel Thursday to Sunday every week. So we're certainly trying to enjoy that and make the most of it get some things done around the house, you know, those sorts of things and, and really get yourself mentally prepared and, 
and uh, kind of ready for the storm that's coming. You know, I think you're exactly right. There's going to be a whole lot of racing in a short amount of time. Um, but, you know, a lot of us have been through that stuff before. Maybe maybe some generations haven't, you know, been through that kind of steady racing at this point. Um, but I have. You know, I went and raced with my dad when we would go for the, you know, different speed weeks around the area whenever we would, you know, have a seven-day stretch of races that was straight through. We'd run every night, and there was just a there's a mindset to that. And I think that we're all going to have to get back to that sort of thing, and we're going to have to get serious about, you know, how do we take care of our guys? You know, people that are traveling this much, you know, how do you maybe cycle some people through and, and keep your drivers fresh and healthy? You know, their physical recovery takes a couple days. You know, these races are really demanding, uh, especially just from a hydration standpoint. You know, how do you get rehydrated and ready to go that quick? So trying to stay on those guys, make sure they stay physically fit during this time because they're about ready to, to hit a storm. You know, I think it looks like maybe, you know, you know one of the first races we're going to run is going to be the, the, the Coke 600. Well, that's the longest race of the year and you haven't raced in two months. So that's not going to be an easy thing for anybody. So it's um, crazy times, but, you know, we're all going to get through it. These all seem to be very, very minor and secondary things compared to uh, those that are out there really fighting the battle for us right now. Well said. Well said. Well, you, you're obviously with one of the best organizations, if not the best organization when it comes to motorsports. And uh, I was thinking about your team owner, Roger Penske, and uh, everything he has on his plate between his businesses, his race teams. You know, he bought the Speedway and IndyCar this year. So uh, it's it just amazes to me when I step back and look at how he can juggle everything and, you know, it's really a credit to the organization and the people that he has. And you're one of those people. And I can't say how, how proud we are here in Western Pennsylvania to have someone like you down there representing uh, our area. And uh, it's awesome to see you get to the level you've gotten to. Well, I certainly appreciate it. You know, I'm very proud to be from Western Pennsylvania. I feel like some of the best racers, you know, in the, in that era when we were really racing hard with my dad or, you know, whenever I think back to that, it was incredible the level of competition and how many racetracks we could go to within three or four hours of our house and, you know, all the great, great names. And, you know, when you travel around the country, you know, and, and people find out kind of where you're from or, you know, there's, there's different hotbeds of racing for different things. And there's definitely people that, that respect our area for the level of motorsports that exist. You know, it, I think, probably tracks like Lernerville have helped put us on the map and have always been really, really top notch facilities that have attracted some of the best, you know, over the years. And it's, um, it's a privilege to be from a place like that where I think we all learned how to race really hard because we had a lot of really good racers around us and everybody there seems to have a real good work ethic and just a, um, it's a great place to be from. Certainly proud of that fact. And, you know, you mentioned Roger there. I, I think that, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least touch on, you know, his ability as a leader is something that I've never experienced with anybody else I've come across in my life. I think that a lot of people you hear about, you know, that, that get into these big public roles or, you know, they're successful people, you hear a lot about them. And, and maybe sometimes it's it's a little bit blown up or maybe it's a little bit of hype, but I think that um, you can't even imagine the realities of how hard that guy works and the visions that he has and, and the way that he motivates people. It's, um, it's really a, you know, I get an education every time I get a chance to talk to him. And I think that 
that definitely bleeds through the organization and everything starts at the top and he certainly sets the bar very high for, for, um, you know, just quality and integrity of how you go to work every day. And that's been a, that's been an amazing experience for me to work with somebody like that, uh, to have the chance to work for somebody like that's a privilege. Well, we appreciate you taking time out of your day and time away from your family to talk with us. Absolutely. Thank you guys very much. And hope everybody stays safe and make the most of this time when you have it. Great to talk to Travis. How great is it that we have a Western Pennsylvania native who is the competition director for Team Penske, one of the, if not the, most successful team in American motorsports. Thanks to Doug Bowles, Marcus Erickson, and Travis Geisler for joining us on this week's edition of the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. And thanks to you for joining us, race fans. Don't forget to stay up to speed on all of the local racing news, as well as the latest in the world of NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars, and dirt tracks at PittsburghRacingNow.com. Any use of this podcast without the express written consent of Pittsburgh Racing Now is prohibited. I'm Scott Stiller. We will talk to you next week. Stay safe and healthy.